Miller is up next, but I just want to urge you to continue making that call that makes the difference. Be sure that you support On the Margin and Ethelbert's good work as we move into the 9 o'clock hour. Continue to call and support Democracy Now! Uh, at 800-222-9739, WPFWFM.org. Freedom is not free. To have an outlet like WPFW here for 47 years is no small feat, and it's because of you. 800-222-9739, WPFWFM.org. You are in tune to WPFW Washington. Welcome to On the Margin with E. Ethelbert Miller. My guest today is Eden Raskin. Eden Raskin is the founder and CEO of Chasing the Moon Productions. Eden Raskin is currently working on the film Notes of a Citizen, the Marcus Raskin story. How are you doing today, Eden? I'm good. How are you doing? Okay, we have a lot to talk about. Um, You're joining us during our winter fundraising marathon here at WPFW. I hope we'll donate. (laughs) Right. And you know, we'll discuss about fundraising. I know all about it now. (laughs) Right. Okay. (laughs) And we'll tell our listeners to call um, 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 and help us reach our goal of $600 this hour. Eden, um, what was life like for you before you decided to become a filmmaker? Interesting question. So I recently-ish decided to become a filmmaker. Um, I don't know. That's like such a broad question. (laughs) Like for me, Um, I grew up, my dad was, I grew up in a really politically active family. Um, And so that was kind of always at the core of everything that I did and kind of like at the core of my existence in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, for many years, I think I was kind of really trying to figure out what I was passionate about and what I was excited about. And I dabbled here and there. And now I'm kind of in this place career wise where I'm really feeling excited and inspired in a way that I have not necessarily before. And, um, you know, it's very interesting because I'm sure we'll talk about the film a lot and my dad a lot as we get further into this. But my dad kind of had this mentality of, you know, just do it. If you believe it, just do it. And I really did not understand that. And when I was growing up, I always found that kind of frustrating because I was like, you can't just do things. We're all not like this genius like you. And now at this point in my life, I mean, this also comes from a place of privilege as well, but I'm like, oh, I can just do things. And it feels like really liberating. And I think it takes time to kind of get out of your own way to to do what you believe in. Um but you're so, also doing yeah. some you, you're also doing work as an investigator with the public defender service. What type of skills did you develop there? So I was an investigator at PDS for a few years, which was probably the most formative experience of my life. Um I was out in the field every single day. Um I saw DC fully for the first time, and I'm from DC. So that really says a lot, I think. Um and you know, I love talking to people. And through that, I was like, I can talk to anybody because we're all the same at the root. And I think that was really helpful for me to kind of, I don't know, it's like you just talk to people and just ask questions. And 
Um, I have, I guess I have never really had a lot of fear in connecting with people and just like kind of going for it. But that really showed me like, I can just do it. I can just make shit happen. And sorry. And okay. Well, talk about documentary film in terms of how important you see documentary films in general being. And then also, do you have a particular perspective or angle in terms of the type of film you would like to make? Yeah. So, I mean, I think documentary filmmaking is so important because it really allows people to connect on an emotional level that also brings the truth to the forefront. And I think um, allowing and creating opportunities to look at something from multiple angles, kind of like in an unfiltered way that documentaries allow for is really beautiful and really important. And there are so many films out there that dig into these like really specific um, incidents or emotions. And there's so much universality in all of it that um, I find really important. And I think that's, you know, it's like in any art, and I think you understand this because you were an artist, you just want to connect with people. And I think that documentary filmmaking is has such a unique ability to do that. Um, I already forgot what the second part of your question well, was. Well, no, I was wondering whether you had a particular way of looking at a documentary film. That you're, if I look at your work when it's finished, we'll say, oh, you're using this type of approach. Yeah, well, so my documentary is, you know, like artistically, it kind of is going to like meld a few different approaches. We are going to, it's participatory and verite. And so we're um, filming my journey. And so I'm reluctantly now a part of the film, um, as well as interviews, as you know, because you were somebody that I interviewed for the film. Um, So it artistically melds a few different styles into one. Um, And, you know, for me, I, what I am want to make sure that I'm doing with this is that I want to be vulnerable and I want to be honest and I don't want to just tell the history. I want to really dig into the why and the how and the impact and what drove my dad and then what it meant for everybody around him and for the future. And so really looking at the ripples of one's impact, Mm -hmm. because I think that that's so fascinating. And I think that, um, you know, some people know who my dad is, some people do not, but I think we all create history in our lives. And so how do we tell that story and pay respect to it is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, while you are working on your film, you know, we look around and we see uh, many women emerging, becoming visible in, in the making of films. Do you feel yourself part of a larger community? I very much do now. Um, it has been really special. So this is my first documentary and I have really um networked and built my community and I have um you know kind of coming out of the pandemic when everything is so isolating it's been really beautiful because people are wildly generous with their time and their resources and have really gone out of their way and at the heart of that has been a lot of female filmmakers who I think just want to bring people up as they are coming up. And um, that has been really inspiring to me and something that I hope to do for other people because um, it it means something. And, you know, building communities in every aspect of your life, I think is kind of like what gets you through Mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. You know, I always saw um, DC 
especially before the pandemic, as being a, a good place for filmmakers. You know, Viva Kempner, Hadi Garimer, there were many people here. Um, Tony Giddens had his film festival. Um, are you taking advantage of those type of resources? Do you see that, like, I can stay here in, in, in D.C. and I don't have to go somewhere else? Well, I'm definitely to stay here in DC. I'm DC born and bred. This is my home. My family's here. I, you know, my husband's business is here. My kids are, you know, it's this is DC is my home. But yes, I very much think, you know, Aviva, somebody, the first person you said, Aviva was the first person that I called when I said I was decided I was going to do this. And she has been wildly encouraging and supportive. And she is such a talented filmmaker who focuses on a lot of untold stories. And I think that that is something that's appealing to both of us in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, I, there's, there is a really huge network of um, artists and, you know, of course, politicians and um, the opportunity to focus on uh, making an impact and impact productions and impact filmmaking in the city. But I'm also, you know, now I'm, I'm making connections throughout the country and, um, Ultimately, I want to make sure that this film has a, as wide a reach as possible. Okay. Well, you know, um, you are making a film about your father, Marcus Raskin, and we know that Mark Raskin was the, one of the founders back in 1963 of the Institute for Policy Studies with uh, Richard Barnett, um, the Institute for Policy Studies, a progressive um, think tank. We know that your father died on December 24th, 2017. Um but talk about, introduce your father to our listeners. Introduce my father to the listeners. That is hard. <laughs> you did, you know, what, you kind of did a very good overview of who he is and how people might know him. What I wanted to do with this film, and I can kind of go deeper into the film right now. If well, don't talk about the film. Just talk about Mark Raskin. Well, it's, but it's hard because they're the okay. same. Okay, all film right. Is my okay. dad. And so I'll, I'll tell I'll go a little bit into the film because it's about how okay. I talk about him. Right. And so the documentary is really my, um, follows my journey of discovery into this really prolific and tumultuous time in my dad's life in the 1960s and 70s when he was, indicted with a Boston Five for Vietnam draft resistance. He co-founded the Institute for Policy Studies, which was infiltrated by the FBI for several years. He helped release the Pentagon Papers, was on Nixon's enemies list, um, and two of his colleagues were tragically assassinated by a foreign dictator on U.S. soil just blocks from his office in D.C. Um, and I knew all of these things, but I didn't really know any of the details and I didn't ask questions while I had the chance. And so now I like to say I'm asking everybody else but him. Um, on top of all of that, he was also a concert trained pianist. And for me, his music was really the soundtrack to my life. And that's how this whole film started. And so I think it's really um, interesting because you have this public figure that everybody knows, and then you have to me, someone who was just dad. And um, how do you kind of like reconcile those two things in, in a person? And there's this also interesting piece of how much can you really know someone by the way that they present themselves to you? Um, and, you know, my dad, I think you would say this, everybody says this in an interview, and this is how I remember him the best, is that he just connected with people. And he wanted to talk to everybody and he got people because he listened. And, um, that, I think, is one of the lessons that I hope to learn from him so deeply. Besides all of the incredible things that he did, he was a good person. 
My guest today is Eden Raskin. She is the founder and CEO of Chasing the Moon and with production. And we're talking about the film she's working on right now, Notes of a Citizen, the Marcus Raskin story. And she's joining us during our fundraising um, steps here at um, WPFW. We're trying to raise $600 this hour. And the number to call is 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-939 or 1-800-222-9739. this is a question, um, Eden. You are a Raskin. What does being a Raskin mean to you? <laughs> and, and I say that because, you know, many people know because your brother, you know, we, we, the Raskin name has become like a household name. Um, but what does it mean to you? I mean, when you talk about your father, when you see your brother on TV, um, it must mean something to you. It must have a weight of responsibility. Maybe that's why the energy of doing this film is so important. But what does it mean to be a Raskin? Um, that's a really great kind of a heavy question in a lot of ways. Um, but I do want to say that this is fundraising. I really hope that we reach this $600 goal in this hour. Um, so I encourage people to call right now. Um, what does it mean to be a Raskin? I mean, I think that my dad set a really good example for all of us growing up and for also, I have a million younger nieces and nephews too. And for all of us to kind of stand up for what we believe in and stand up for the voiceless. And that is, I think, part of what it means to be a Raskin. I think it's also it's what it means to be a person and what we should all strive for. And, you know, I keep just saying connecting with people, but connecting and listening. And, um, you know, I think my dad was so successful and Jamie's so successful because they listen to what people are saying and then are able to act accordingly, not just based on what they think is right, but based on what people are telling them and what they need. And um, I I think that that is a, kind of the root of achieving progress in a lot of ways. Um, but yes, I'm also, I'm very proud of my brother. It is, you know, I... A lot of people, when I'm talking about the film, come up and talk to me about how much they love him. And that means so much because I'm so deeply proud of him every day. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's not necessarily a name, but it's that is the weight. It's kind of what what we should do as as a person. Hmm. Well, you know, you you talk about I seen the trailer of the film, you know, this desire to know your father better. Um did you have to overcome a degree of sadness and, and loss while making the film? And was there any time when you felt you were too close to your subject? Oh, definitely. <laughs> um, so I had actually, while my dad was still alive, I decided that I wanted to just record him playing the piano because for me, that was so deeply important to me. And so I had enlisted a good friend of mine from college to just do me a favor and film my dad. My friend is a filmmaker. And when he agreed, I said, oh, we'll just interview my whole family while we're at it and just make a weekend. And so we did this. And then um, later that year, my dad unexpectedly passed and I was not able to do anything with the footage. I couldn't even watch it for years um, until now about two years ago. So there was, that was a pretty solid chunk of time um, in there where I couldn't even watch it because it was too heavy and I missed him too much. Um, And so basically when I watched all this footage for the first time, I was like, oh, there's this huge story that's just begging to be told and I'm the one to tell it. And we not only have these 
deeply personal glimpses into my dad's life, but also into our country's history um, and kind of this, in a way, forgotten and hidden history. And so that was really fascinating to me, too. Um, I Initially, the film was just about my dad. I was not going to be a part of it at all. And because of what you said, because of the closeness to the subject, that felt disingenuous um, to kind of remove myself from that process. Also, because my grief is a part of the process. And grief can be wildly isolating, but is so universal. And so in sharing my journey in this, if I can connect with anybody and they can see themselves in me, that means a lot to me because when I was grieving, I felt alone. Um, And so if, you know, somebody else can be like, yes, I feel that way. I feel that heaviness. I feel that sadness. I'm not alone in it. That means something. If I was a high school teacher or even a college professor, and I wanted to use your film in my classroom. What does your film tell a young person about citizenship? Since your film is Notes of a Citizen, the Marcus Raskin story, what what would be conveyed through the film that I would say, oh, okay, I, I get this. This is what I should be doing as a citizen in the United States. That's a really great question. Um, <laughs> my dad, so the title Notes of a Citizen is a nod to one of his books, Essays of a Citizen. Um, and my dad, this kind of feels bad to say, but I'm really reading his work for the first time um, and obviously doing so much research and learning so much and coming to understand that my dad, along with the people that he was working with, laid the groundwork for today's modern progressive movement. And a lot of what he was fighting for 60 years ago is what we're fighting for today. And so that feels really scary, but it also can be really inspiring because I think a lot can be learned from the successes of his generation and his activism and the ongoing fight for progress that was not always linear. And there were setbacks and there were really hard moments of it. But, you know, I think he shows that if you keep going and if you really believe in something, then you can make a difference. And, um, you know, he talks about your role, our role as a citizen. Um, And when my dad was, he was indicted with the Boston Five in 1968 for um, conspiracy to aid and abet Vietnam draft resistance. Um, Funnily enough, he didn't even know any of his co-defendants before they were indicted together, (laughs) but somehow it was a conspiracy. Um, And he said, I was indicted because I was unwilling to cheapen my role as a citizen. And I think that that is something that we should all kind of channel in our lives in a lot of way. Um, And so I want, you know, for younger people, people my age, people younger than me, I'm not so young anymore, college students and high school students to watch this and really understand that it is my role to stand up for what I believe in and see it worked before. We have been in this place in some way before and we got through it. And so we can get through it today. It just takes time and work and dedication and passion. I saw your father as a philosopher. um, And I'm listening to what you said in terms of looking at your father's work and and learning and reading it. And I was wondering whether when you look at your father's work, are there any things in his work that speaks to you as a woman? That speaks to me as a woman? Um, There 
hasn't been something in his work that has spoken to me as a woman per se. I think more as just a person and as a citizen and kind of seeing my role in that way. In one of my interviews, though, um, that I did with somebody who she has, Sarah Anderson, who you know, who's been at IPS for several, several years. And she started when she was really young. And she was always very um, timid at the beginning. And my dad kind of was like, come speak at this, Sarah, what do you think? And brought her out of meetings. And he was like, why don't you speak more? He was like, you, as a woman, you need to speak more and make your voice heard. And that really resonated with her. And really resonated with me also when she shared that because um, we all have something of value to add. And I think as women, sometimes that is overlooked or undermined. And so having someone that is so established and um, empathetic and inspiring and a name be like, what you say matters. And just because you are a person and because you're a woman. And so I think that that has resonated me more, resonated with me more than anything that I read of his, just what he shared and how he treated the people that he, that he knew. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I would say Sarah Anderson is key to the running of IPS right now. Oh my um, gosh, yeah. <laughs> and I would say that some of the things that your father told me um, really encouraged me to to do more. Um, I'd love to I, know what. Can I ask you? <laughs> well, you know what happened? He, he, I remember I was in his office and he pulled me aside and he said to me, he said, you are the best chair of our organization we've ever had. And and that meant a lot to me. You know, I didn't come there to be a chairperson, you know. Uh, and, you know, sometimes people would say publicly, well, our organization is led by a poet. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, that's why we don't have any money, right? <laughs> okay. but he, you know what I'm saying? For him to say that, you know, and, and I and I looked at all the people that, you know, were ahead of me as chair of the organization. You know, I, I felt that that was, it was very humbling, but it was also, um, I was hearing that from the founder of the organization, mm-hmm. you know, and not some, you know, CEO or whatever, but this is the person who built the organization. So I felt their responsibility to make sure that this dream is kept alive, you know, um, and and I and I think that's important. Before we go to our break, you know, I want I want to ask you a question about this film is about your father, but how much is this film also about the history of the Institute for Policy Studies? Well, my dad and the Institute for Policy Studies (IPS) are in so many ways one. Mm-hmm. So IPS is a huge part of the story. Um, it was a huge part of my dad's life. It was a huge part of his identity and also my life um, and my siblings' life as well. So IPS is definitely going to be featured pretty prominently at times. And, you know, what my dad was working there at the time of the indictment, the assassination, releasing the Pentagon Papers, um, and all of this wild FBI monitoring and COINTELPRO and everything that was touched on in the earlier segment today, that's where he was. And that was the backdrop. And IPS and my dad were really feared in a lot of ways by the government because they asked questions and they challenged the status quo. Mm -hmm. You know, I was wondering in terms of um, looking at the making of this film now and looking at this is 2024's election year. is it almost like a race like to get this film done because of what's happening in our society? So the initial plan was to get this film out and have it distributed leading into the election because 
ultimately, I think this film will really inspire people to act. Um, I have learned so much unexpected information and so many bombshells along this process that um, there's basically just threads that I keep pulling and there's just more and more and more there. And so I'm not going to rush the investigative and artistic process just for a deadline. Um, I think that the story is kind of timeless in a lot of ways. Yes, I would love for it to be out leading in, but um, I don't want to under, I can't undermine the, um, ultimately the greater story that I'm trying to tell. But, you know, I think that at this time, we all leading into this election need to stay engaged and make our voices heard and really look at what the bigger picture is with this election and what what's at stake here. Okay, I'm going to ask you a few questions before our break, but the next couple of questions, um, I want to have you walk us through the making of this film, Notes of a Citizen, the Marcus Raskin story. So the first question, Eden Raskin, is um, did you have an outline, you know, okay, in terms of we know that you're dealing with your father and, and learning about father, but, you know, this, you know, the same way if you're writing a memoir, you know, um, you have to say, okay, I know where it's going to begin. I know where it's going to end. Did you have an outline in terms of this film? So the film is still in production. So I'm still doing interviews and research at this point. Um, but yes, it started not with an outline, but with a general idea of kind of the topics that were going to be covered. And so, the founding of IPS was going to be one, the FBI monitoring the Boston Five, um, and him as a pianist is basically this like undercurrent throughout the film. Um, and then the assassination. The Pentagon Papers, I thought, were going to be a bullet point at this. I have learned so many shocking things about that, and that's now the arc of the story in a lot of ways. And so it's changed, and I, I think... You kind of, with anything that you are doing in life, artistically or not, you have to be willing to change as you learn more. And so the story has definitely evolved from what it began as. Um, but I, yeah, I started with a general idea and that has shifted and very much grown mm -hmm. since the beginning. But I have a, now. I think I have a clear understanding of where we're going with it. Okay, let's let's um, this this is like sort of a spiritual question, you know, okay. um, because you are dealing with your dad. Um, do you feel that he's perhaps guiding you through this film? Oh my gosh, yes, very much so. He is so with me in this process. It's wild, and it's just there have been so many little serendipitous moments that have happened throughout the filming where something just appears at the exact moment that I need it, um, that I don't, he's here. There's no other way to describe it. And um, that is beautiful. And I think through just talking to people and learning more than I am, all that I am, he, I feel closer to him, which is very special. But there's even actually Ethelbert a moment with you. I don't know if you remember, but you gave me a bunch of materials um, before your interview. And I went through all of it. And then I was going up to interview Cor and Peter Weiss in New York like the next day. So I cleared out your folder and put in all of the new information for Cor and Peter. And when I was prepping for their interview that morning out in New York, I had forgotten to take out one thing that you had given me. And I didn't even look at it the night before because I was rushing so much. And it was an email from Corin Peter to my dad. And I didn't even know I had it. 
And it was in this folder that I'm seeing for the first time. It shouldn't have been in this folder. <laughs> and it was there. And then I was able to talk to them about this like beautiful, heartfelt birthday tribute that they had written to him. Um, and it was like this little moment of like, what? <laughs> Why did it happen in this silly way? But it did. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a little break, um, Eden Raskin. Um, who is my guest today. She is talking about her film, Notes of a Citizen, the Marcus Raskin story. The show's on the margin. My name is Ethelbert Miller, stations WPFW 89.3 FM. Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Think about how much you've relied on Democracy Now! and its birthplace, WPFW, this year. Democracy Now! began in WPFW's Adams Morgan Studios as an election year program that brought analysis and spoke truth to power. Just as Democracy Now! continues to do today, 27 years later, as an independent, unembedded, international investigative news hour. The global team of journalists you hear on Democracy Now! brings you the events and voices of those attempting to create a just world and reports on the most daunting and heartbreaking issues facing humanity. Freedom is not free, but it's vital to the world we want to inhabit. Your financial gift ensures that WPFW can bring Democracy Now! to you live Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. each weekday morning. Go to WPFWFM.org, that's WPFWFM.org, to make a secure tax-deductible contribution now. That's WPFWFM.org. And thank you so much. Okay, we're back on the margin with Eden Raskin, and I want to thank Marcus and Deanwood for making a pledge this morning. And so we only need to raise $380 more this hour <laughs> as we're listening to Eden Raskin. So um, please consider making a donation this morning. Uh, um, Eden, the Marcus Raskin papers are at the Gelman Library, George Washington University. Um, how helpful was the Raskin collection making, uh, helping you making this film? And, and what did you find in the collection? Um, that's a great question. So I um, went through all of my dad's archives are at the GW Gelman Library and um, and IPS's archives are at the University of Wisconsin at their historical library. And um, it was so fascinating going to GW to go through the archives. My dad was a very messy person. His office was just like overloaded with books and papers at all times. And um, so I went to the library, I had my coffee, I had snacks, I had water. And they were like, oh, you can't have any, any <laughs> it's nothing by any of these papers. And I, and I, they were like, these are precious archives. And I'm like, these were sitting on the floor of my dad's office for 20 years with coffee stains on them. But okay. So I appreciate the work that they are doing and keeping the history safe in a lot of ways. But um, the, his papers have been wildly helpful and informative. Um, I, at the point that I went through them and I'm going to go through them again, I mean, honestly, multiple, multiple times, but the first time I went through them, I found all of his correspondence from 1959 through 1963 when my dad came to Congress and um, worked on something called the Liberal Project, which in a lot of ways is the precursor to the Progressive Caucus, um, and wrote something called the Liberal Papers and then moved to Kennedy's White House and worked for the National Security Council and then from there founded the Institute for Policy Studies. So it was this like wildly 
busy, exciting time in his life when he was like 26 years old and they have all of his correspondence from that. This is what I'm curious about, you know, you're making a film, but you're reading all this stuff. How do you take something that's like this print material, turn into film, and how can you make sure you don't get distracted? Like, you know, oh, I found this, let's do this. (laughs) Totally. I mean, I think that there's going to be like a five hour cut of this movie that just has everything in it. And, you know, I find like the liberal project and the liberal papers, it's this really interesting story that I have found, but I don't know that it'll make it into the film because it might distract us basically. And so I think the editing process, of course, is going to be really important. We'll have this big cut and we'll just keep slimming it down until we get to the tight, concise story. Um, But, you know, it's when you think about film, it's all it's a it covers all the mediums. It's the stories at the heart of it. But what are you seeing visually? What are you hearing? What emotions is it evoking? And um, yeah, so it's like when you just have papers, how do you make that something into visually that is exciting to look at and compelling? And so that's something that, um, you know, we have a lot of ideas on and I think we're going to get there. Um, but it's it's really interesting. And at that time, you know, like the younger people listening to this, it's, then he would send a sentence note to someone that would be a text message or a quick email, but that would go through the mail to someone. And you have all of these like carbon copies of these typed up messages with the secretary at the time. It was probably a woman whose initials are in the corner and just these like quick little shoot off messages. And then of course, like very long memos and letters as well. But it's so interesting to think about the evolution of communication from that time also. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I was born, my dad was 52. Um, this was kind of like a lifetime before in so many ways. And so to read this young Marcus Raskin, who is full of energy and who is just hustling to get stuff done it is so fascinating because that is not really the person that I knew in a lot of ways. And when I interviewed a lot of his colleagues from that time or friends from that time, they always described him as high energy and helter skelter and would jump into cabs with his jacket half on because he had so much to do and was always in a rush. And I was like, that's not my dad. What are you saying? That's that people, people used to compare him to, to Albert Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> well, they also had like crazy hair and were always a little disheveled looking. Right. And, yeah. And but it's so and so then to to hear the stories and then to read it in his voice was really helpful for me to start to see the person that others had described to me more fully. Because I, of course, come into this with this preconceived motion notion of the man that I was really close to and who was like my center in so many ways. Well, and let me so ask you this, Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, so we look at Nose of a Citizen, the Marcus Raskin story. What will your film reveal to people who <clears throat> knew Marcus Raskin and say, oh, I didn't know this. You know, that, that there's something that you come to in your film and say, oh, I, I, I never knew that. Is there anything like that? So... There's a lot of moments like that. <laughs> there, there's a lot of kind of huge moments of discovery. I have had huge moments of learning information that has really challenged my understanding of my dad um, in ways that I was not expecting at all. Um, and that has been a process for me and will be part of the film and something that I kind of talked to my siblings about and um, seeing someone more fully for the first time, especially a parent, uh, is 
kind of a wild ride. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think for me, my dad was always kind of on a pedestal. And then in his death, he became sainted to me. And so to see the complexity in his humanity is really grounding, honestly. Um, and he was just a person doing the best that he could, and he was not perfect. And that has been, I think, now at my point in the, at this point in my life, really helpful for me to understand. And I hope that people also um, kind of see that people that do great things aren't perfect. So you can also do great things. Mm -hmm. um, but then the people that knew him... Um, I interviewed John Cavana for five, who's the former director of the Institute for Policy Studies. I interviewed her for five hours a few weeks ago. And there was a lot that I shared with him that he did not know and he was kind of in disbelief about. So that's also this funny part now because I'm so deep into this that I'm now the expert. Even though I didn't live through any of this, I kind of have a more complete picture. And so it's funny to talk to my siblings and have them share what their memories were of us being six. Jamie was six when dad was indicted with the Boston Five and what that was like for him. And then me filling out the rest of the story for him. And it's it's been a process. <laughs> well, you you also, we have a donation that came in from Julie Barnett. <laughs> and so I want to thank her. And so, you know, we're moving closely to meeting our goal of, of six, $500 actually this month this hour. Um, we need $320 more. So I hope we will um, listen and we can do it, people. We can do it. Call 202-588-9739. It's 202-588-979. Is Jerry Parrish there? Um, <laughs> yes, I am. Oh, I, Jerry, come on, say something. Introduce yourself to Eden. Oh, okay. So I'm Jerry Parrish, general manager of WPFW. Um, and here to make sure that the machine <laughs> works. We are mere stewards of a platform that this community has created. We are a free media. We have an army of volunteer programmers, of which Ethelbert is one. Ethelbert, uh, are you defensive you, or offensive? <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, I'm on the bench. <laughs> no, never on the bench. She's too valuable a player. Come on. Here we okay. go, folks. We are trying to make sure that we can keep this platform alive into the future. So we've still got a good ways to go to make the goal. We're sitting at 3.3% of a goal right now. So 202-588-9739 is the number that you call to join up and become a part of this fight. Really, that's what this is. It's a fight. So we need your energies. We need your participation. We could use a few dollars because we're only here trying to pay bills. There's no profit in this operation. This is all community. It's really all about love, and we need you now. 202-588-9739. Out of area, toll-free, 800-222-9739. Our website, wpfwfm.org. There's a Donate Now button. Hit that to pledge quickly and securely and help us move these numbers. Everybody's got a smartphone. On your smartphone, pull up Cash App, type in dollar sign WPFW. No amount is too small. No amount is too large. Help us move this machine. We need your help. Ethelbert. Okay. Thank you, Jerry. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. This, <laughs> this show... Okay. Hmm? Kind of This show kind of completes all of the circuitry, if you will. 
it's quite a platform, and it's important that everybody be a part of this. And Ethelbert, so much has been on this show that relates to my life personally, and a lot of people who listen say they are impacted by this show and WPFW. So thank you. That's also why I interviewed on the show one time, Jerry, <laughs> to find out what's, what was going on in your life. <laughs> <sighs> Jam pack, you know, you know, the responsibility here at WPFW is pretty tremendous, but we have to appreciate, and it's a fact. All right. This is well, the, we, appreciate you. we appreciate you, Jerry. Okay, one I last thing. Thank you. Okay, one, one last, last thing. thing. This is the jazz and justice platform on the planet. This is the number one jazz and justice platform on earth. We need your help to keep it alive. Thanks, Ethelbert. Okay, you sound like Sun Ra, but I won't get into that. <laughs> Who was right, by the way. Now we, we realize Sun Ra was right when he said space is a place. There's hydrogen right. out in space. He said, ah, oh, okay. wait Jerry, stop. Just stop, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Eden, Eden, that was Jerry. Hi, Jerry. That was a great pitch. I, I need you on my team. <laughs> right. We'll talk about you. We'll, actually, yeah. we'll probably hire Jerry after the show. I love well, it. Well, Eden, Eden Raskin, um, we're talking about this film, Notes of a Citizen, the Marcus Raskin story. I want you to talk about four interviews briefly. Um that I pulled out. Um, the first is the interview with your mom, Lynn Raskin, um, in terms of you talking to your mom, okay? And then, you know, um, your interview with, with, you know, your brother, Congressman Jimmy Raskin, and then also your interview with Ann Barnett, and then also your interview with Frank Smith. So let's begin with your mom. I mean, you all uh, you're sitting down and talking to your mom, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yes we we've done this a few times now but this is but this is being recorded <laughs> oh yeah 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 no we but i've now my mom and i've been on camera a few times together and it's it's an adventure for sure um do you have a specific question or do you yeah know? i was just wondering in terms of what the questions that you wanted to ask her you know um that would be key to your film that only she could answer yeah, um, it, it's been really interesting with my mom <laughs> because um, she I knew my dad better than anybody. My parents were incredibly close. Um, they knew each other for a really long time and went through a lot together. And But she didn't know everything. And so there's some stuff that I'm telling her for the first time. And... Some of the things that I'm learning and when I kind of talk to people about it, their reactions are very polarizing, which is really interesting. And my mom is one of those. And we kind of reacted to some things differently. And so I, you might be referring to the trailer where. <laughs> yeah, really, right. That is, that's just where, the trailer. <laughs> yeah, where there is kind of this moment where we're really, there's a lot of tension and we're disagreeing on something. And, um, but I, I so it, it's kind of interesting to also not get into it, but kind of, and have these like real raw unfiltered conversations with about, someone that is so important to both of us that we wouldn't have these conversations if it wasn't for the film. And so in a lot of ways, I'm also like grateful for the catalyst that it has provided that has opened the door for us to speak openly about these things before it's too late. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of the things, this kind of sounds silly to say, but um, 
I'm so struck by now in this process is how much of history we lose when somebody dies and when somebody ages. And so I, you know, I have a lot of regret over not asking my dad more questions while I had the chance. He um, kind of had this long, steep decline in the later years of his life that kind of marked my entire adulthood in a lot of ways. Um but, you know, I also hope that people kind of walk away from this and are like, I'm going to ask my parents questions. I'm going to ask my grandparents. I'm going because if we don't ask questions, it's gone. Mm -hmm. And people are only then remembered in two memories or two events. And there's so much more to all of it. And well, that's, so that's, that's, that's why I was curious about how going from your mother and your interview with Jamie Raskin, because I was wondering whether there was in the discussion, your loss of your father, and then also Jamie's loss of his son, that there's mm -hmm. a sense of, you know, trying to hold on, you're trying to hold on to your father, he's holding on to his son, you know, um, I just was wondering, did that come up in any of the discussion? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, Jamie and I, we had this really interesting conversation where I was just over there having dinner, and then I was like, oh, I guess I'll whip my phone out and record us, because this feels really important, where... Um, I kind of just touched on this, but for me, part of this film is kind of documenting what it's like to lose somebody when you're still with them, because that was my experience with my dad in a lot of ways as he declined. And Jamie was shocked by that because he was like, that's not my experience with dad at all. And I, you know, through talking to Jamie, I realized that our dad's decline really started when I graduated from college. So basically my entire adulthood. And, um, you know, Jamie had him most of his life and got to see him as also a grandparent to his to his children um and so that like our experiences life experience with our dad are very different also jamie lived through this wild tumultuous prolific time um and i just heard about it um and so that it's it's interesting in the sense of also how everybody processes grief so differently because you're also in different places in your life when somebody passes. Um, with Tommy, um, it's kind of hard to talk about my dad without talking about Tommy because they were so close. I think in a lot of ways, Tommy was so similar to my dad. And I think we all kind of thought of him to be someone who would carry on our, on my dad's legacy. Mm. Um, and, you know, with me in this film and feeling like I lost my dad too early, I'm kind of desperate to keep his memory alive and to hold on to him and to keep that going. And I think what Jamie and Sarah have done a really beautiful job um, after Tommy passed was keeping Tommy alive for us. And he was such a kind, good, beautiful person. And he brought that out in everybody. And so making sure that we tell that story and um, allow people to connect with the beauty and the tragedy in Tommy's life. And also I am so grateful to Jamie and Sarah to, for being open. Yeah, and, about I, and, I, and I would say, struggles. I, and I would I, say that Sarah's, Sarah's tribute um, 
the Tommy was one of the most moving, tri- moving, funny tributes that I, I've heard. I mean, in terms of for mother to just talk about the genius of her son. I mean, it was just, it was just, I just was gripping. It was funny, yeah. uh, and it was just a very good way to remember. So I, I was, I was curious about that. And well, let's talk about um, Ann Barnett and also Frank's right. Councilmember Frank Smith. What did, what did they reveal to you in their interviews? Um. Well, Ann. So <laughs> Ann Barnett is the um, wife, widow of um, Dick Barnett, who is the co-founder of the Institute for Policy Studies with my dad. Um, she is incredibly close to our family, of course. And um, so I interviewed Anne almost seven years ago when my dad was still alive, when I was just interviewing family and talking about my dad and just asking, like, tell me memories about him. And it was just for the family. And it was a very open-ended thing. And um, so that's when I had initially interviewed Anne. And she, you know, it's funny because we, she kind of gave me these glimpses into the FBI monitoring and some other really funny moments about my dad and you know, the, how my dad and Dick met, which was, they were at this, my, my dad worked for the national security council. Dick was at the department of defense. And it was like all of these like buttoned up military men in a room talking about if they couldn't agree on nuclear disarmament, then it could never be reached. And my dad and Dick looked at each other from across the room and just started giggling because they were like, well, this is ridiculous because nobody in the military has a denuclearization plan or that's not their goal at all. And so then they talked after the meeting and then started founding IPS together. Um, So Anne, she's just like such a beautiful human also. Um, We also, we've talked since um, and she has shared really interesting insight into how the FBI monitoring impacted her. And I think sometimes like when I grew up, it was kind of like a badge of honor and being on Nixon's enemies list was a badge of honor, but there are real, that really affects the, it it affects people. And there's kind of a lot of collateral damage at times when you are so involved in a movement and there's family collateral damage as well. And I think it's easy to forget about that. And I don't think that we should. Uh, My sister also touched on that as well. And that is something that I hadn't really thought about before. Um, Mm. That was something I saw very closely um, with the SNCC um, organizer, James Foreman, you know, the impact on his life and family. And, and that leads us into talking about Frank Smith, who was also yeah. a member of SNCC and also um, a DC council member, because I remember um, many people who were in SNCC, when they came back to Washington, um, they felt that, you know, they were tired of, you know, there was a place that they could be, and that was IPS. Talk about what Frank Smith said about your father. Um, yeah, Frank is amazing. Um, he is a truly, truly inspiring person. Um, Frank really talked about how, like you said, IPS was kind of a resting place for people in the civil rights movement and was um a place for people to kind of get their grounding, catch their breath, and collect themselves. Um and you know what was really innovative about IPS at that time. So think tanks were not really a thing in the '60s. It was really it was the first progressive think tank, and it was one of the first think tanks. Um, but they were really unique in the fact that they brought together different movements into one think tank, whereas 
if anything existed at the time, it was very issue focused. And so at IPS, you had the civil rights movement, you had the anti-war movement, you had the women's rights movement. And um, my dad was very focused on how that would help each movement and how you could learn and collaborate and work together. And so Frank really talked about how unique that was and how people were there because of my dad and because of his ability to see something special in someone and in the movement, kind of the greater picture of things. Um, and, you know, Frank, he told me really fascinating stories about how when they were working together, the Voting Rights Act passed, um, how my dad was actually like critical in that in a way that I had no idea and how my dad connected them with members of Congress and helped them build their momentum um, to really get the attention of the party. Um, and, you know, so there's hearing that from Frank, it like made me feel incredibly proud. Um, Frank also shared, you know, really, as well as Anne Barnett, really heartbreaking stories about um, the impact of Orlando Letelier, the uh, assassination and the impact that the assassination of Orlando Letelier and Ronnie Carpenter Moffat had on their entire community at the time and on my dad and um, helped me understand that in a new way. Um, and you know that it's it's heavy it's heavy mm -hmm. you you dive into the heartbreak of that sure well we're coming to the end of our, our show at Ethan Raskin but I want to ask you I know you have all these interviews um what will you do with the material that you don't use in the film will it be donated somewhere that's a great question yeah um I mean the plan is I'll probably donate it to some archives at some point either through um the Institute for Policy Studies or to GW, because that's where my dad's archives are right now. But yeah, I mean, there is so much history outside of what is going to be in the film that is needs to be documented and shared and is really interesting and can help tell another story in some way. And so I want to also provide the um, opportunity to for people to kind of uncover this hidden history of this time. And, you know, I want to encourage people to also really understand the past so we can more effectively advocate for our future and help people see where we are today in the context of where we have come from. You know, almost every child has a special moment with, with their parents. And it's, you know, as we come to the end of the show, is it, I always think of your father with, with a sense of humor. Is there any funny story that, that you remember captures your father during your childhood? That's <laughs> Um... I, I mean, my dad like just spoke to everybody. And so at times I was like, oh, must we? Like we're in a hurry is there. But he also, I don't know. He, what I think was so great about him is that he was so unapologetically himself. He never put on fake airs about anything. He would go to an interview with like a rumpled suit and stains on it. My mom and I would always have to like try to fix him up before he did something like that. And he just didn't care. He was like, this is who I am. Um, there was this one time, I don't know why I'm going to share the story right now, but I, whatever. He So this is when Jamie was running for state Senate and I was working on his campaign and we were making huge signs for the 4th of July parade for people to hang on their houses. And so we were up like all night and my boyfriend at the time came over and my dad was hanging out with all of us. And my dad brought out a book of, um, and 
my boyfriend, he was like kind of like timid and shy. And my dad brought out a book of Martin Luther King speeches and started playing the piano and then made my boyfriend read I Have a Dream while my dad played the piano. And he was like, more passion, more passion. And it was like the most, but it was such this, I don't know. It was. Well, you know, you are, you, you are your father's dream. <laughs> Eden Raskin. And I want to end that. We got, we're coming to the end of our show. But, you know, I, I know that you had a lot of these stories and I just wanted you to end with one. And and because that I felt that's a way of really capturing your, your your father, you know, that spirit, that humor and that life and that dedication. And that's what makes citizenship so important. So I want to thank you, Ian Rash, for being my guest um, today. Um, we're still trying to raise some money here during this hour. So call 202-588-9739. It's 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. Eden Raskin, thank you very much. Eden Raskin is the founder and CEO of Chasing the Moon Productions. She is currently working on the film we were discussing all morning, Notes of a Citizen, the Marcus Raskin story. And I believe you're going to have a fundraiser soon. <laughs> so <laughs> um, if you didn't give to WPFW, <laughs> you know, you may have to hold on to the, the other part of the money for, for maybe for Eden. But um, as you can see, um, our community whether it's a radio station, whether it's a filmmaker, we wouldn't be here unless you supported us. Okay, Eden, thank you. Thank you. Can I just say really quickly Mm -hmm. that um, Amy Goodman was saying that Democracy Now! their motto is speaking truth to power, which is the Institute for Policy Studies motto as well. And I think at this time when um, there are such one-sided stories out there, having WPFW is so critically important. And so we can talk about human rights stories we can talk about politics and we can talk about humanity in a real way so support there's four minutes left i want okay to all, all right okay yet. okay thank you Eden they, got, they have to play music okay so right thank you very much my name is ethel miller the show's on the margin the station wpfw a 9.3 fm Collective Voices and the Francis Gregory Neighborhood Library invite you to celebrate Black history through poetry from 3.30 to 5 o'clock p.m. Saturday, February 24th at 3660 Alabama Avenue, Southeast Washington, D.C. as they present African Americans and the Arts. Collective Voices, whose members are Lady Di, Sister Joy, Bernardo, and Billy O'Kara, are known for their messages of social consciousness, inspiration, and empowerment. In addition to their original poetry, the celebration will also feature an exhibit by Washington area visual artist Jason Keene and conclude with a book signing. This event is free and open to all ages. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Hello, this is Dave Zirin, co-host of The Collision, where sports and politics collide. I want to share with you why I think WPFW is such an important resource in our community here in the DMV. Look, we know that most of the media that we get in this town is embedded media. That means it exists to favor people with power and privilege. WPFW is not just the voice of the voiceless, it is the voice of the deliberately unheard, to use the words of the great Arundhati Roy. And as long as there are people being unheard in this community, WPFW will be there. So please support WPFW. Go to WPFW.org to support.
WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. On Friday, February 23rd, 8 p.m., Strathmore presents prolific drummer, producer, and composer, Micaiah McRaven. Blending jazz, hip-hop, and electronic elements into a modern, beat-driven sound, his latest album, In These Times, is the triumphant finale of a project more than seven years in the making. Inspired by both broader cultural struggles and his personal experience as a product of a multinational, working-class musician community, McRaven has a unique gift for collapsing space, destroying borders, and blending past, present, and future into post-genre, jazz-rooted, 21st-century folk music. Micaiah McRaven, In These Times, One Night Only, Friday, February 23rd. Tickets and details available at strathmore.org. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. No social justice issue or movement can escape the spotlight of the Latino Media Collective. 